Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Dorn, and in 2011, Potter and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life, and we love it. With restrictions starting to tighten again, we're obviously staying on Zoom for the foreseeable. You can find all of our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are two stories in this podcast for you, and they're brilliant, from two veteran 10 by 9ers First up is Richard O'Leary. He told this at our September event when the theme was nerves. Originally from Cork, but now living in Belfast, Richard is a multi-talented man, and as you're about to find out, he has yet another string to his bow. Take it away, Richard. When I was a child growing up in Cork in the 1970s, I was a little bundle of nerves. A small boy who was often frightened, worried, or nervous about something. At times I had nerves about competitive sport. At other times about religion. On this occasion, it was a combination of my nerves about sport and religion. It was April 1974 at my primary school, Clahey National School. That was the day our headmaster, who we called Roundy, because he was big and round, came into our classroom to make an announcement. Roundy announced that our school would be entering Cork's annual primary school sports day. Our rural school had less than 90 pupils and medals won by our school at the Cork Sports Day were as rare as medals won by Ireland at the Olympics. Roundy said every pupil would have to run in what he called trials to select the fastest boys and girls to represent our school. The thought of competitive trials did not appeal to me. In my class of nine-year-old boys, there was Tony Reardon. Tony was bigger and stronger than me, and at various times during every school day, Tony would thump me on my back. Now I was being told to compete in a race against my tormentor. That afternoon, class group after class group was taken by Roundy out of the classroom and onto the main road. We called it the main road, but in those years in the countryside, there was hardly any traffic on it. So Roundy simply used the main road as our running track. Roundy marked on the road with chalk the finish line and he instructed us that when he dropped his raised hand, we were to run as fast as we could until we reached him at the finish line. There I was start at the starting line to compete in a competitive race. Naturally, I was a bundle of nerves. So I did what I always do in these moments of crisis in my childhood. I appealed to my mother. No, not my human mother. What would she be able to do in this situation? This childhood crisis required supernatural intervention. I called on Holy Mary, the mother of Jesus. At the starting line, I said a prayer. This prayer, dear Holy Mary, please do not let me come in last. Roundy dropped his raised hand and we were off. I ran as fast as I could, faster than I'd ever run in my life. I sensed I was pulling ahead of Tony Reardon. As I reached the finishing line, I raised my arms and swept past Roundy and shuddered to a halt. Tony Reardon arrived after me 
panting like an exhausted bull. Roundy came up to me, beaming, and he said, You'll definitely be going to the city sports. You could do well for our school. I was delighted, but my joy did not last for long. By that evening, my achievement no longer made me feel better. It made me feel worse. I was now worried, how would I meet Roundy's expectations? Such was my sense of burden that I embarked on a desperate course of action. This involved me persuading my older brother by paying him some of my meager pocket money to become my trainer. He advised me that I needed to train on grass. This being the countryside, we had plenty of grass, but it was mostly in hilly fields. The only flat field, about 300 yards from our home, was a field on the Lee Road. The field in front of the huge public shrine to Holy Mary, known as Our Lady. Arriving at the field, I glanced up at the statue of Our Lady looming above me. Above her head was a giant halo of lights in the shape of a heart, the sacred heart of Jesus. Below her in the field, I was expected to train. My brother ignored my complaints that the grass was six inches high, that the field was dotted with thistles, and that I had to run while dodging patches of cow dung. Furthermore, knowing that Our Lady was watching me made me feel self-conscious. I did worry, was it disrespectful to be running up and down in front of Our Lady? Might it bring me bad luck? I decided it wouldn't, but I resolved not to tell my devout Catholic mother that she thought otherwise. I looked up at the statue of Our Lady and I said to her, Our Lady, if you help me to win a medal at the sports, I promise mm -hmm. you I will return here to the shrine and recite 50 decades of the rosary. The help of Our Lady doesn't come cheap. As I'd stopped training in the field, at dusk, the lights in the shape of a giant heart around the statue of Our Lady would flicker into a low red glow. On the day of the sports, Roundy collected me from our house on the Lee Road and he drove us in his car to the Mardike sports ground. The grounds were thronged with hundreds of child competitors and teachers from schools from all over the county. I huddled with my school group, bewildered by the noise and the mayhem. Occasionally, Roundy would appear and drag a child away, presumably to join a race. I was on my own. I didn't really know what was going on, and I wandered off. I was, of course, a bundle of nerves. Suddenly, Roundy pounced on me. He was furious and shouted, Cuckoo! Cuckoo! What did he mean? Roundy said to me, You silly boy, you've missed your race. The next day at school, I felt so embarrassed. Roundy thanked all the children who had participated in the races. I knew this did not include me. Nor did Our Lady get her 50 decades of the rosary. One year later at Cluhy National School, it was again the day of the trials to select who would represent our school. Once again, I was lined up on the main road. 
a bundle of nerves. But I again won the trial. My brother agreed to train me and we returned to the same field in front of this giant statue of Our Lady. The grass was again too high with thistles and cow dung. That year on returning to the sports ground at the Marlike for the competition in 1975, I was determined that I would at least this time get to run my race. I pestered the adults around me to make sure I made it to the starting line for the race for 10 year old boys. This time I lined up with boys I did not know. They looked bigger than me and eager to win. I thought of the statue of Our Lady on the Lee Road. I said to myself, Our Lady, if you help me to win a medal, I promise you I will return to your shrine and recite 50 decades of the rosary. Then I heard a starter's gun. The starting gun rattled my nerves, but I shot off, following the other boys. I ran like my life depended on it. It was all over in seconds. An adult grabbed me by the shoulder. The adult told me I had won a medal. This medal. The medal is gold in color and in the center has an engraved image of a runner. I was so happy that I even relieved temporarily of my nerves. I have never since resumed competitive sport. As I emerged from childhood into adulthood, I also got better at managing my nerves. I paid my debt of rosaries to Our Lady, and for the past 40 years, I've been debt free. Oh, Richard, oh, that's brilliant. I have to say, I'm surprised Protestants ever win anything when you've got uh, advantages like 50, an offer of a bribe, I think would be a better word, 50 rosaries. Gosh almighty, that's like what Patrick would do in an afternoon. Was it cheaper up the north? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't think we'd have gone to 50. I think that would have been a push. Maybe, a, you know, three Hail Marys and Our Father and a, maybe a, a Glory Be. I mean, by the height of it. Apologies to all, anyone who's not familiar with Catholic tradition. But thank you so much. And uh, quite an impressive grotto, actually. Very elaborate headdress on the Virgin. Yeah, it was a 1950s for the, the Marian year. But to our disappointment, in the 1980s, our statue did not move. <laughs> like Ben's statue. Uh, <laughs> Believe it or not, Podrick has a story about that, but that, I'll let him tell that. So, And yes, this is true. Podrick does indeed have a moving statue story, but that is his to tell. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the phenomenon, just Google Balance Spittle and Moving Statues. Richard, thanks so much for that. You are a champion. And I will put a photo of that very elaborate grotto up on our Facebook page. Now, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Also, we have a YouTube channel which features all our recent Zoom stories, including today's, so go check them out. And if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. Next up, another regular, Paul Hutchinson. He's been amusing and challenging our listeners for years with his fantastic stories. This one is no different. He told it in August when the theme was home from home. Bally. Over 5,000 places in Ireland carry the prefix Bally, meaning place of. Bally money. Bally mina. Bally clabber. Bally will will. 
on and on into the thousands. But I am haunted by only one Bally, Bally Vester, where the family on my mother's side had a bungalow where all of her side bungled into, primarily on the 12th fortnight. The family bungalow where my mother went most summers as a child, as an interlude from the Shanko. The family bungalow where my parents, Derek and Val, went on their honeymoon. The family bungalow where my immediate family occasionally decamped and with great resistance from my father, who said it was falling down as soon as it was built. In other words, the bungalow was basic and always required work. And my father did not want to work on his holidays. He wanted to hunt and fish and swim and dig sand castles at the beach. And my mother did not notice the work needing done at the family bungalow, content as she was to bask in her childhood memories and to enter her firstborn son into beauty pageants. And although it was a break from home, the bungalow at Ballyvester could not be called a home from home. For one thing, the bungalow had lively electrics, exciting light switches that spark when you touch them to turn on a light. On many an occasion, we sat in darkness and fear of electrocution from the big light switches. And the toilet was not like home either, situated as it was in a stinking outhouse containing a fuming bucket of crude chemicals with no light to guide the way. We strived to do our business in the daytime. However, one of my strongest holiday memories ever was the night when my dad and I were driving slowly down the Ballyvester Road toward the bungalow with a few scattered holiday homes on our right and a farmer's field on our left. I'm seven years old, sitting in the front passenger seat of the car. It is a big deal to sit in the front with dad as this signals our special time together, chatting and looking for adventure. Literally, my dad was either on the hunt for adventure or running from an exploit gone sour. And so in this moment, dad slows the car a hundred yards from the bungalow. I glance at him for explanation. He whispers, look, and points to the field on the left. I turn, desperate to see what my dad sees. Nothing but an unremarkable field. Look, he says again, pointing, two rabbits. I squint in the field for signs of bouncing, nothing. Then I see something of what he sees, spot the two rabbits that my dad has easily spotted. His eyes are trained and he wants to train my eyes to see what he sees, to see among other things, rabbits in a field. And then dad creates what you see in most action movies, a montage sequence of usually men assembling weaponry, playing with their killing toys over dramatic music. He reaches slowly into the back seat and brings his shotgun case into the front seat and in what seems like a few sinuous seconds assembles his single-barreled shotgun and inserts a single red-encased shotgun shell. I have grown up with guns. I am at home with guns, but this scenario is strange. This assembling of a shotgun in a parked car at the side of the Ballyvester Road. I feel alarmed and giddy. 
roll down your window, says my dad, but slowly. My hand shakes as I locate the turning mechanism and roll down the window. Move your head back from the barrel, says my dad, as he gently, purposefully pushes the shotgun barrel out of the window I have just rolled down. I am holding my breath now, remembering how I held my breath then, in the front seat of that Volkswagen car, waiting for my father to take aim at a rabbit. I wait, trembling and trusting. He cannot tell me when he will release the safety catch. He cannot tell me when he will slowly pull the trigger. His breathing slows as he aims. He does not know when he will be ready. He does not bang. And with that noise, the world changes, is invaded by the smell of gunpowder in my nostrils, the taste of combustion in my mouth, the ringing of gunfire in my ears. I look to the field. His aim is true. A rabbit has been hit. And then with a big grin, he looks at me and says, go and get it before anyone sees us. And without question, I open the car door and run. I scale the metal gate and lope as fast as I can in cheap sandals on uneven ground. I feel afraid of and attracted to my task. I've seen a rabbit dead before. I've been skinning them since I was six, but this was different. Would a rabbit still be alive, wounded, moaning? Do rabbits moan? Go and get it before anyone sees us. My dad's voice over and over in my head as I run for the rabbit. Who is coming? Is this a crime? I am seven years old, running to a rabbit that my father has shot from a parked car on the Ballyvester Road. And it is 1971 in Northern Ireland and a gun has been discharged. Are the police on their way with their guns at the ready? And in my chest, a lung full of pride, knowing in my body that I was doing my father's bidding, that I was my dad's faithful dog, wagging my metaphorical tail, plowing through muck in my now dirty sandals. I arrive at the spot where the rabbit was shot. It is still, I am moved. I am flustered and woozy. There is blood, I presume and hope it's dead. I pick it up and gather it to my chest, cradling the rabbit to my body as I turn back to my father and the open car. I arrive at the car out of breath, beaming, anxious that my father will be well pleased with me. Good job, son. Let's go. Before somebody sees us. I jump into the car, holding tight a still warm, still bleeding creature in my arms, an icon of devotion to my dad. It takes 15 seconds to reach the bungalow. My dad is laughing at having made another adventure on a deserted road near Dungadee. I run into the bungalow shouting, Mom, Mom, look what we got. Dad shot a rabbit, Dad shot a rabbit. And my mother turns and sees red, the red of my flushed face, the red of the rabbit's blood, and the red of the rabbit's blood on my jumper, on my cream iron jumper. The cream iron jumper my mother had just finished knitting the day before. My now bloody cream iron jumper. 
And my mum looks up at my dad's grinning wolf-charmed face with one hand on his son and the other on his gun. My dad the hunter and me his gathering son. You've ruined his jumper, she says, and walks away. The holiday is over and I am standing torn between a dad's pleasure at his son and a mother's anger at her husband, between a man with a gun and a woman who knits. Many thanks, Paul. And there's much more of Paul and his story scattered throughout our podcast. And he also has a book out called Between the Bells about his time in the peace organisation Corimila. It is a great read and is available at the usual book places. Now, as you know, Time Van is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overhead and keep us going through this period. We are really thankful to everyone who's donated, and I have a little list. So, big thanks to Beck Aiken and family, Melanie Leesner, Brian and Catherine McGuire, The Killicks, Louise Nealon, Katie Whitehead, Janet Croker, Fiona Mannion, Ashley Hunter, Darren Chittick, Jade Irwin, Adele Roddy, Peter Anderson, Carlin Beck, Damien Stone, Sinead Gary, Gita Meaton, Linda Faith Kelly, Connie Phelps, and David Laverty. And to everyone who's made a one-off payment as well. We really are very thankful. One of the few positives from this period is that we've managed to hear from people who wouldn't normally be able to get to the black box. We've people join us from the US, Canada, various parts of Britain and Ireland, the Netherlands, Austria, the Czech Republic, and Iran. Anyone can take part by popping along to our Zoom events wherever you are in the world. And that is it for me for now. Check out the website 10by9.com and get in touch. We love hearing from you. The podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So you can blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.